Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Hasn't been a great week on Notre Dame's campus. On Tuesday, the university announced that in-person classes were suspended for two weeks with other measures being taken to prevent the spread of COVID-19 after a sharp rise in cases has developed. And Notre Dame football has since paused its practices with five players testing positive this week. So to start, Eric, is it time to start panicking? Well, it depends who you are. If you are typically somebody that panics, then go ahead. I, I don't think it is. I, I think that we knew that this was going to be a bumpy ride, and I think there's still a legitimate path to the season. I mean, there's a lot of factors that we don't know how Notre Dame is going to react to, and we certainly don't know how this whole testing thing is going to go moving forward. But I think I would – Put the, I would hit the pause button on the panic button for now. All right. Um, I'll sort of quickly kind of recap some of the university news. Um, the Notre Dame campus has now recorded 304 positive tests since August 3rd, which includes seven positive tests from the football program. Um, Off-campus off students are prohibited from coming onto campus other than for COVID-19 testing purposes. Uh, public spaces are closed and guests are banned from the residence halls. Um, the Tribune's Allie Kirkman did an in-depth story on some of the issues on campus, which I'd highly recommend anyone to read if they haven't yet. Um, from her story, quoting it, uh, in a letter to the student body issued late Tuesday, Notre Dame acknowledged it wasn't prepared for the spike in cases and did not respond to all student calls in the personal way we pride ourselves on at Notre Dame. The statement said, some students in isolation and quarantine units are not cared for as promptly or as thoroughly as we would have hoped. We deeply regret any inconvenience or worry these gaps in our in care caused our students, especially at a time they were feeling ill. Um, there were a, a new 75 new positive tests were reported Thursday. Um, and so the Notre Dame campus is sort of trying to recover from everything that's happened in recent weeks and they will have to um, sort of figure out a new plan and see if this is a tenable situation moving forward. Um, it, I, I don't know. I was watching, uh, 
President Jenkins' uh, statement live on YouTube. And the way he started, it almost seemed like he was getting ready to say that they were sending kids home. He, he, but he had said, like, we were going to send you home, but we've decided that it's worth keeping you here and we're going to try to give us another shot. So it was, that was a very big fake out. I don't know if I was the only one that sort of felt that way, the way he was talking. It was, it was, it was very, uh, um, it was like a roller coaster kind of listening to what he was saying. But um, I guess moving over to the football side, knowing now that there's been five positive tests from their testing on Monday and Wednesday, and now they plan to test again on Friday um, before trying to resume practices. What, what do you think that means in terms of how Notre Dame's football program is interacting with the student body, how they're doing in terms of isolating themselves? Is it encouraging news, discouraging news? I don't know. I think it's, it's hard to sort of qualify how we should be accepting this information. Well, the way I would accept it is, you know, there were basically from the time the students arrived and first started testing, there were two positive tests until the students showed up. Right. And now there's been seven more. And I think that as we kind of looked at just the college football players or the athletic teams coming back to various campuses, we saw flare-ups when they first arrived. You know, they were going to parties as well on a lot of the campuses and or or to bars. So so at LSU and Clemson and Kansas State, we knew that that was the case. And then they kind of learned their lessons and we saw much better numbers pretty much for the rest of the summer. Then the students come in and we're seeing in campuses across the country as they open up these, these surges. Um, and if you look at videos of the students arriving and mingling, you know that that was going to happen. Um, so as it pertains to football, you know, it's a learning process. So I I think the biggest question is I I think Notre Dame football will be able to get its act together kind of being sequestered from the students right now. Uh, We saw them do it all summer. They had the discipline to do it. And I think, you know, they're going to be able to get back on the practice field here fairly soon. The issue is if the students are reintroduced to campus, what's, what effect will that have on the football team? If they're not reintroduced and they're sent home, then does Notre Dame philosophically feel it has to pull the plug on football? And I think, you know, I wrote about it in my analysis yesterday. I think that's a fascinating Uh, topic because Notre Dame's president, Father John Jenkins, and athletic director Jack Swarbrick have been on record of saying, you know, if it's not safe for the students to be here, it's not safe to play football. However, football now has a track record of being safe when they're in a kind of a bubble situation. So do do they reward the football team for their diligence and hard work, um, and go ahead with it. I think they should, um, if they send the students home, if the students are reintroduced to the population, it's going to be a pretty wild ride just because I still think it's just like other parts of society. There are people that think it's a hoax. 
it's the cold, it's the flu, um, and they're going to act accordingly. And they're not going to really be worried about who they infect. Yeah, it's it's hard to. I'm I'm struggling with figuring out how. Like, I think everyone seems very upset, and I think probably rightly so that the students came to campus and started spreading the virus pretty quickly. Um, and obviously, the testing rate. Um, has, has gone up to close to 20% in terms of the positive tests of the, of the students on campus who have been getting tested, but they're not doing, they haven't been doing surveillance testing yet. And so that's of the small sample of, of uh, students who have symptoms or were connected to someone who had symptoms or, or felt like they needed to take a test. So I'm curious how like, so this week Notre Dame has five players out of the 116 players on the team test positive. That's 4%. Um, 4% of 12,000 students isn't necessarily a lot of students either, but it, it adds up when you talk about the, uh, the num- it's, I think it's pretty comparable with, with what, 494 students. I haven't done that math, but um, the 494 tests today, it was, it was a 15% positivity rate today, which was actually a little bit lower than the past couple days. Right, but I, I, I think my point is that the overall number of, of students who have tested positive isn't necessarily a greater percentage of the entire campus as, the, as is the uh, percentage of Notre Dame's roster being tested positive. So I think it seems like the students are being uh, irresponsible. Yeah, it's about 3%. But the, also the, the percentage of, of the rate of the infection on the team right now is at a similar rate. So it's hard to – I feel like – I think we have to be a little bit balanced in saying, okay, these, these students are acting like idiots. Um, but I think there could be people that aren't necessarily acting like idiots on campus too. Um, so I think we don't have, we can't forget that. And so it's, it's going to be hard for Notre Dame to figure out where it draws the line in terms of, okay, is it worth having these students still on campus because there's this percentage of students that aren't taking this seriously um, in order to, if they do that, is it because they're trying to, save the football season um and how do they move forward with that and and it does it make sense for Notre Dame to try to do that is it does it put the Notre Dame football program in a better position um to be on campus without the other students which would seem to be a yes based off of how the summer went um but it seems to be uh, a tough predicament for a, an academic institution to make that call now it's we've seen that happen elsewhere where they're deciding, well, maybe it makes more sense to have online classes and not worry about bringing students on campus um, and, and football players can still be on campus and they're all taking classes the same way. So it's not necessarily an unfair advantage either way. Well, uh, you know, I don't mean to, I don't want to paint all the students with the broad brush too. I'm sure there's people that are doing all the right things and they're getting infected because they're coming into contact with infected asymptomatic infected people and you know they may be their dorm mate you know they their dorm roommate may have gone to a party came back and you know you're sleeping in the same room breathing the same air for hours so you could certainly catch it that way I mean through the university's contact tracing they seem to think the vast majority of these cases are coming from off-campus parties that's what they were that's what father Jenkins said and I think that you know, in that case, that's kind of how the virus is spread in that age group 
away from campuses, that there's these super spreader events. So they're either at parties or they're at a church or they're at a big gathering um, with no masks and no social distancing. And it's usually just a couple of carriers that are able to spread the virus to quite a few people. You know, I read a study in South Korea where there was one guy that went to the bars and infected over 100 people in one night. And for South Korea, that's a very large surge. Um, But getting back to your point about whether it's philosophically correct for football to continue, you know, I think you have to try. Uh, And I think that, uh, um, you know, Notre Dame has given it a try with the students being on campus and trying to have in-person learning and they're trying to play football. And I don't know why you should pull the plug on football. Be just, just if, if the other situation doesn't work, if the other situation doesn't work, yeah, you're an academic institution, but I think football, again, when the students weren't there, there were only two of them. And one of them showed up with the virus. So one player through the whole summer contacted the virus while he was on campus. Yeah, and I, it, we'll probably never know, but it, I would be interested to know if how did these five football players get the virus? Were, were some of those guys at these parties that are being blamed for on campus, or were they in a class with some of those people that had those? I, I'm not sure. We don't necessarily know how that happened, and certainly I think – if we had more information on that, we would be able to have a more clear picture of how seriously everyone on Notre Dame's roster is taking it. Now we, we, we don't, and it's not just the parties. I mean, we saw photos and video of the tents that they, that Notre Dame had set up for dining halls and they had these tables all spread apart and the chairs all spread apart. Right. And there's this big clump of students all gathered together with no masks, all together talking and so forth. And, you know, Notre Dame says, okay, we're going to have to monitor those tents, which I kind of thought you would have done that in the first place. But, <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, but, you know, they're learning. I mean, it's not like there's been a precedent where they could look back in the 1918 archives and say, wow, how did they do that during the Spanish flu? Did they have monitors in the dining halls, um, you know, the makeshift dining halls? So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that kind of almost makes your head explode every day, kind of thinking about it. Uh, but I do think certainly outside of Notre Dame, there is movement to play sports and, and they're kind of creating these bubbles for, for the athletes, I guess, unintentionally, just because it's not working with the normal student population. But I think another point, Tyler, is, um, you know, I think if Notre Dame was still an independent in football this year, which they will go back to being next year, I think it would be much easier to make that decision to say, okay, a week before the season, we're pulling out and we're not going to play. You're a member of the ACC this year, and they made big concessions to schedule you in, give you, you know, 10 conference games, and and then you pull the plug on them, and then that they have, you know, 10 teams have holes in their schedule because philosophically you're different than them in terms of wanting to move forward. Now, if the conference altogether made that decision, that's another 
matter. But it's it's going to be an interesting debate because my sense is they're not going to bring the students back. I think that you know the numbers will stay high enough where they aren't going to give it a try, or that if they do give it a try, they'll have to say, okay, it's it's not working. Yeah, it, for all the precautions they can take on campus, nothing is preventing, none of those rules are preventing off-campus parties from still happening. You know, I mean, these right. things can still happen for kids that are off-campus. They can still gather, and um, now maybe Notre Dame uh, becomes more strict and starts uh, penalizing kids who, who do stuff like that. But um, I think uh, – one of the issues I have are people on Twitter and people in my profession on Twitter saying the colleges were stupid or greedy to invite the students back on campus, knowing this was going to happen. They just want to get their tuition money. I mean, my sister works for a major university, and at some point, you're going to have to bring the students back to campus unless you're going to be online forever. I mean, COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. And even when we get better testing and better therapeutics and a vaccine, there's still going to be cases because not everybody's going to take the vaccine. It's not like we're going to hit a light switch and then it all goes away. Um, you know, our behavior still plays into the formula of trying to mitigate this, the spread of this virus. So, you know, what are you going to, if you, if you send them home now, if you didn't try in the fall semester when, Ideally, I guess it would be better because of the weather and you could do some things outside. What are you going to do in the winter semester when you can't have outdoor dining halls? Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's everything just seems like a nightmare. And I'm yeah. glad I'm not the one trying to plan it and figure it out. Um, I guess it, uh, we get to be the ones that either – Well, my, my thought is, I mean, we have to try. We have to try things in this COVID era, if science took, took the um, tack that people want education and other things to do, oh, well, let's not even try because it's, you know, we wouldn't be speeding towards some vaccines in early 2021. They'd say, well, it's going to take, you know, four or five years. There's never been a vaccine invented in one year. Uh, that's just impossible. Let's just take our time with it since it's impossible. Well, they're, they're doing kind of the impossible with science. And that's the one area that hasn't failed us to this point. They keep coming up with things that are going to make it easier to manage it. But again, at some point, there has to be some cooperation on our part to, to marry with the science and say, okay, <laughs> we now have cheaper testing that turns around faster. Uh, now we can you know, now we, you know, still have to modify our behavior until we have a vaccine. And even then, until there's enough immunity in the community and so forth. And, and you can say, too, about the students being here, you know, it affects us, too. You know, they're raising the level of infection of our community. You know, the state of Indiana has a 7.7 .7 positivity rate. It's a lot lower than what Notre Dame's been spitting out from their student population. Well, I've got grandkids. I've got a son that lives here. You know, I've got friends, you know, and I have me, you know, and, and so they're raising the level of infection in our county. So, you know, I would like them to be a little bit more responsible and, and uh, 
learn that there are consequences, not just for them, but for all of us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And it's, it's so hard as a reporter to, that's following this when <laughs> kind of your job is, is pretty directly tied with what's going to happen to this football season. So the ups and downs that the team is going through, we're kind of going through like during a season, we don't losses, wins and losses don't really affect me, but everything that has been going on with the virus the last six months, uh, it seems to affect me in different ways, uh, in, in order to try and do our job. So, uh, I think we're, we're certainly hopeful and it's hard to at times remain hopeful, but we'll see how things continue to play out. They seem pretty, determined to try to make this work and it was off to a good start and now they're now they need to uh i guess call a call a good audible uh, right now um interestingly enough while all this is happening on campus uh jack swarbrick appears to be busy trying to book an 11th game for notre dame uh tim priester of irish illustrated reported wednesday night that notre dame is going to play usf on september 19th which was the hole that western michigan created when the mac uh postponed the fall season um my reporting today indicated that there's some truth to that, though I don't know that a deal has been finalized yet, but it seems like um, Notre Dame and USF are working toward trying to get that game on the schedule. Um, given the state of things in, in college football, I wouldn't call anything a, a done deal or something that's going to happen. It doesn't, But it doesn't even seem like there's been a, a formalized contract or anything. Um, yeah, not that it won't happen, but I, I don't think it's been finalized yet. Do you think that adding USF makes sense for Notre Dame? Um, and, and is there any value to that? Or are those questions you're hoping to ask Jack Swarbrick as well? I think I'm looking to ask Jack Swarbrick what the <laughs> rationale is. And, I mean, everybody in the ACC is trying to add that 11th game. Clemson was able to add theirs either yesterday or today. They were able to add Citadel to their schedule. Um, so not everybody had that 11th game. I mean, certainly I think it makes Notre Dame's TV partner a little bit happier having more inventory, having a sixth game, uh, when they're typically used to having seven games. Um, and it also kind of gives you another game early in the season in case, you know, that the season kind of gets truncated in November or something if they're is the flu kind of, you know, interacting with COVID and, and then it's just too difficult to finish the season. You want to get games in and so forth. But I kind of like to hear Jack Swarbrick's explanation about, you know, why there was an urgency to add 11th game. Obviously that was in the blueprint. So it's not like he's trying to add a 12th when everybody else is playing in 11th. Thing too, Tyler is, you know, I mean, to keep in mind, we don't know that this is necessarily going to be Brian Kelly's best team, but it has the chance to be, and it has a chance to be a team that could win a playoff game, especially when you take the big 10 and the PAC 12 out of that mix. I mean, if you don't have to play Ohio state, I think whoever they would play instead of Ohio state is not going to be as good as that team. Um, So I think you want to make something of this season. I mean, if this was 2016, I think they'd say, yeah, let's just keep it at 10. But, you know, I mean, this is a team that has a chance to be in the playoff. And do you want missing the playoff, the reason for that being that you only played 10 games 
and everybody else played 11. Now, who knows that they'll even play three or yeah. one. It just – the likelihood of what separates Notre Dame from the playoff being a, a win against USF or not playing USF just seems very small to me. Um, so I don't know that I would totally buy that argument. Um, so, well, it, it, but but certainly that's been you know in Notre Dame's mind, and, and and certainly if you listen to the national media, I mean, when we talk about Notre Dame's playoff resume in other years, there's the twelve versus the thirteen thing. Right. There were a lot of national writers that thought Notre Dame was never going to make the playoff with with um, twelve games, and. Uh, you know, they did as an undefeated team, but I, I think they could have made it in other years with a one loss as a one loss team. I think they could have made it in 2015 had they not stumbled so bad at the end of the year, you know, um, be looking very unimpressive against Boston College up at Fenway, losing the Stanford game. If they were just going through November with a head of steam, I think they might have gotten in that year. Yeah, I, you would think that. Notre Dame being able to play in the ACC championship this year would sort of eliminate any any questions about obviously. Well, beating Clemson twice, yeah, would certainly be a bigger feather in your cap. I mean, Florida once, yeah, or even if they, yeah, or if they even beat Clemson just one time, and if that was enough to get them in. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's very strange, and I, I, I guess I don't fault them for adding a game. I'm just curious to hear the reasoning behind it. Um, before the campus outbreak sort of uh, ruined this week's schedule, uh, we had a press briefing from uh, Brian Kelly on Monday. Um, talked a lot about football, which seems strange after the last few days. But uh, what was were your biggest takeaways from that that latest uh, press Zoom briefing from Brian Kelly? Well, I I think my biggest takeaway is that I think he feels like they're in a good position as they move towards the season. Again, I'm just going to assume there is a season. I don't want to keep saying if there's a season, every sentence that I say, no, so let's just make that assumption for the, for the purpose of this podcast that they feel like he feels like the areas where they're trying to get some answers, they feel like they're finding them. You know, they feel like they're, they haven't found that starting buck linebacker, but they feel like, boy, there's some really good depth there, and this is the year you may have to play depth at your linebacker. Um, I think they feel pretty good about the running back position because Chris Tyree and Kyron Williams are, you know, probably better than advertised. Kyron Williams uh, seems to be catching Brian Kelly's eye, and then um, Chris Tyree. I'm, I, I talked to Brian in the middle of July, and he was pretty fired up about him. The tight end group looks really good. Even with no Kevin Austin, I think they feel pretty good about the wide receivers. And then the cornerbacks, I mean, for them to be one of the surprises, the pleasant surprises that he brought up, that was shocking. But having talked to Mike Mickens and knowing his background about getting young players ready to play wherever he's been, including himself when he was at Cincinnati, um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But, again, you're talking about guys that were pretty raw as cornerback prospects. They went out and got really good athletes with some length, and they're they're filling out their depth pretty good at cornerback. Now, we'll see as we get closer to the Duke game how that's holding up. But 
those are all pretty good signs. How about you? What what jumped out at you? Yeah, well, the he was asked about the pass rush depth, and I think that has been discussed on, on, by various reporters across the beat about. I think the severity of how big of an issue that could be for Notre Dame. Do they have the depth that is ready to to compete? Obviously, losing Khalid Kareem, Jameer Jones, and Julian Aquara is is quite the quite the hit to that position. But I think we all felt, to varying levels, confident in the backups they have. Obviously, when you have Dalen Hayes and Ade Ogundeji, you have two guys that have played a lot already, and then you have young guys like uh, Isaiah Foskey ready to emerge potentially. Ovia Gofu has been sort of a guy that's been blocked from the playing field, but um, has some unique athletic um, attributes that not a lot of defensive ends do because he's a, he himself is a former linebacker. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting to see that Brian Kelly was pretty confident that he didn't, he didn't hedge too much on that. He's like, hey, we got pr- at least four really good guys there when you talk about Ogundeji, Hayes, Ogofu, and Foskey. Um, and that, that didn't even include Justin Adam Alola, who I think um, is, is capable in his own right. Um, so I, that was interesting to me. And then obviously you got a guy like Jordan Batella, who's a talented freshman. I don't know if he's going to be able to make an impact as a freshman, but um, long-term you like his potential too. So that was something that was interesting to me. Um, the question that I, that I asked him uh, or that I submitted to be asked of him uh, was if he thought that this is his most talented group of freshman skill players that he's had at Notre Dame. And he didn't, he wasn't willing to come out and say that because he doesn't necessarily like to come out and say those types of things or make declarative things. <laughs> Maybe the last time he said something like that was when he said Phil Dracovic was one of the best quarterbacks in the country uh, when he, when he was signed as a recruit. Um, so he, he didn't go in on that, but he seems pretty confident that Chris Tyree, Jordan Johnson, Michael Mayer, Kevin Bauman, those are all guys that are, are ready to, make an impact as freshmen right, right away. And um, I think I, the longer I've done this, the more skeptical I've become of that because it just seems like there's the, that those are few and far between the guys that actually make those impacts right away. Um, but if the clips that Notre Dame has released uh, either on social media or given, given us access to as the media um, – seem to indicate that those guys are actually making plays in these early practices and, and um, are getting opportunities. So I, I was um, encouraged to see that. Um, I guess if I were to ask you that question, do you think this is the most talented group of freshman skill players that Kelly's had? I think at least at the top of the list they are. I think the, the four, the two tight ends um, – Bauman, although Kelly says Bowman, so maybe I'm saying it wrong, or maybe he is. Uh, Bauman and and Michael Mayer. He still says Houston Griffin, so I think we will have to rely on our pronunciation for now on it, Kevin Bauman. So, well, the last time you talked about Brian Kelly mispronouncing somebody's name, he made (laughs) one of my tape recorder. So I'm going to defend him and say, Tyler, watch it. So, and then when you add Jordan Johnson at wide receiver and Chris Tyree, yeah, I do think it is. I mean, I think the potential for those guys, now they're not in a need for any of them to start, but I think they'll all play a lot. Um, You know, Jordan Johnson's the one I'm least confident about having a lot of playing time, and he was the five-star. Right, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of crazy, but yeah, I think it's a really, really – 
impactful group and and they're walking onto a team that you know is a pretty veteran team so you know i think the fact that they're impressing in that context i think is a pretty big deal yeah i i've given carter carl's a hard time because he he's been playing jordan johnson lately <laughs> like it's a like it's a skinny limb to walk out on to say that the five-star wide receiver is going to be able to play as a freshman but uh I think there have been plenty of skeptics out there that, that have, have sort, of, sort of maybe cooled on what he could have done, but it seems like early on in practice he, he is making uh, those impacts. Speaking of wide receivers, Kelly did give us a updated timeline on Kevin Austin Jr.'s broken uh, foot. Uh, he said he would be sidelined uh, 8 to 12 weeks for a full return, so that would, in theory, from his August 3rd surgery date, put him back as soon as the Florida State game on October 10th, which we, I think we thought was a possibility previously. But if it could right. to 12 weeks, that would mean that he might not be available till the Georgia Tech game on October 31st. Um, so I don't know that that was necessarily discouraging. I think we sort of kind of anticipated it could be longer than eight weeks, given the examples of Bonzi Colson and Myron Tangovaloa Mosa. But, and I think, Kelly, I think part of the, the big window there with, with a month, month, month's width of a window there, it's it's based on what they'll find out once once he gets to start putting uh, weight back on his on his foot in a month um, or a month since his, his surgery, um, and then they can start doing some rehab for him. So I think there's uh, a ways to go there in terms of figuring out where his progress is. But certainly that's a guy they really want as part of this offense because he might be the most explosive uh, weapon that they have at wide receiver. Um, Another, uh, in, uh, not injury note, but another note that came this week was John Olmstead, an off, backup offensive lineman, entered the transfer po- portal. Um, he was playing guard at Notre Dame and, and uh, certainly wasn't going to start this year with Aaron Banks and um, Tommy Kramer at guard. It was working to find a reserve role there. And um, Notre Dame has been recruiting offensive guards at a pretty high level too, so um the offense, the interior offensive lines was going to get pretty crowded for Notre Dame. He, uh, John did not disclose, uh, uh, his reasoning for entering the transfer portal and said it was personal. And so we'll see if we get any word on that, but, um, not something that necessarily in, in impacts Notre Dame, uh, this year, but, um, it's kind of a reflection of the depth that Notre Dame has on its offensive line when it can lose a, a four, former four-star offensive line recruit. And it's, it's almost, uh, a, a footnote and, and something that doesn't that doesn't get a lot of attention because they do have a lot of depth there on the offensive line. Now, I guess looking forward, we don't know necessarily when we'll get to talk to Brian Kelly or anyone within the football program um, in the near future, and we don't necessarily know when they're going to resume practice as they um, plan to test on Friday, and then uh, the medical experts will consult with them and tell them when it's good to start practicing again. But when we get to start talking to Brian Kelly again and talk to him about football things. What are the, what are the biggest questions you still have for him or want to learn more about in terms of where this, this team is headed football wise? Well, he did mention some things about Brendan Clark and Drew Pine. I I, I would be curious how comfortable he would be for one of them to start and finish a game if called upon. Sure. Yeah. I think that would be kind of at the top of my list. Um, you know, I, I still I, – and I asked him about the safeties, but I'm still kind of curious how that all works out. I mean, you're 
you have five safeties, and I know he said Sean Crawford can move over there, but do you really want to move Sean Crawford out of being a starting cornerback? Um, you're an injury or a COVID test away from being pretty lean at that position. And I know he felt pretty good about how, like Litchfield Ajavon, who who's probably the fifth of those safeties is coming. Right. Uh, but And I'm also wondering, again, can – and I think you wondered this, can Houston Griffith and Isaiah Pryor play together? Right. Or are they the same piece that needs to play with Kyle Hamilton? You know, so we're kind of nuancing things. We're looking at the return game a little bit, trying to – we think Lawrence Keyes is going to be the punt returner. I'm, I'm interested to see if Chris Tyree can work his way into the kickoff return role with Braden Lindsay and if Braden Lindsay remains there since now he's kind of a starter um so the, that's more what I'm looking for I know in July I was really I wanted to know a lot about run defense because I thought that was the next step for Notre Dame and and even though that maybe the pass rush has some questions and somebody said it was the biggest question on the team I'm not sure I would agree with that yeah um I think their interior defensive line has really come a long way. I actually think that'll play into the pass rush. I mean, you put Jason Adam Alola in there. I think he's got some burst where he can create some things inside that'll create opportunities for the guys on the edges. Um, and, and I'm not taking anything away from Myron or Kurt Heinish. I, I think, again, you just keep rotating those guys in. David Lacey, Jamie on Franklin – you know, Howard Cross, you have some pretty good interior defensive linemen. So, you know, without watching them, it's <laughs> harder to come up with the questions, yeah. you know, and the answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, it takes me a lot longer to prepare questions for a Brian Kelly press conference under the current circumstances than it would if we had just watched a practice. And it's like, okay, I don't even need to write anything down. I have plenty of questions that are floating around in my head that, I want answers now. I think right now it's like I have every question I want answered because I don't have any answers because I don't know. I don't really know what's going on. Yeah, you know the 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 blessing I think in picking Tommy Reese as an offensive coordinator is you're not trying to install new terminology and new scheme. Sure. Yeah, uh, that would be a nightmare, especially with these pauses in practice. You know, I, you know. My questions are more kind of outside football now. You, you know, they turned around that Wednesday test in less than 24 hours. And I'm wondering if, they won't, if they've accessed a faster test for this particular instance, which might be more expensive, right. because they certainly are out there. You know, the Yale sal saliva test is going to be scaled up here pretty soon, and that's a very cheap test. But Rutgers has a saliva test that can be turned around quickly that's $150 a pop. So maybe they invested in that just to get the team back on the practice field faster. So be really interesting to see Friday morning how quickly that turnaround, if they would know sat by Saturday, you know, or right. even Friday afternoon, uh, if they had enough clean tests to hold a practice. 
Yeah, it's, it sort of feels on Monday when we had that press conference that we were kind of transitioning into, okay, here's this is football season. This is what fo- we're going to start talking a lot about football with Brian Kelly, and maybe we'll get to start talking to some players soon. And um, I think we got a nice reminder that uh, these questions about COVID-19 aren't going anywhere, and there's going to always be something to sort of track about that, whether it comes to how they're testing, how players are contact tracing. I'm still interested in learning more about how how they identify – figure out which guys are, are in touch with their teammates enough to be, to be uh, quarantined via contract uh, contact tracing. Easy for me to say. Um, and uh, it seems very complicated. The web of who's all actually coming in physical contact with each other. Now, certainly physical contact isn't the same as uh, a high risk contact that would warrant uh, you needing to be quarantined, but it's a, it's a uh, thing that I think is evolving and Notre Dame's trying to figure their way through it. And we're going to have to keep, asking questions and monitoring how, it, how it's going. Well, there was a story, I want to say it was an athletic, with an LSU medical expert that was advising them. And I think their interpretation of close contact is different than what I've seen other schools say. And what she, I believe it was a she, what she said was that, you know, the players are um, – on the line, you know, the alignment are breathing on each other, but the play is over fairly quickly. And she was citing that the CDC guidelines talked about constant, um, constant contact for 15 minutes. Well, in her mind, once you, the play was over and you go back and you kind of stand on the field separate from each other, and then you come back up to the line that you're recycling that there's other people that think that that should be cumulative. Right. Uh, and, and again, there's always science that is helping out throwing another, um, another interesting part into the calculus of all this. I saw that Virginia tech at Virginia tech, they've developed a face shield that um, stops 99.9% of the droplets. So these whatever we answer today may not be the same answer a week and a half from now. Yeah. That's, that's been one of the difficulties in trying to record a podcast because you record a podcast and you're afraid that it might be outdated by the time you edit it just to, to share it with people, let alone by the time people actually get to a chance to listen to it. So um, we, we were uh, kind of flying by the seat of our pants. That's why we didn't ask for any questions this week. Cause we didn't know when we were going to actually get to talk together and when would be a good time to record a podcast, but we're recording this. Uh, Thursday late or early evening. Um, and so uh, hopefully nothing crazy has happened before you get a chance to listen to this. And um, we'll try to get back next week uh, for another podcast. Uh, so that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. Um, like I mentioned, we'll try to keep a weekly schedule as long as The football season stays alive, so stick with IndyInsider.com for all your preseason Notre Dame football coverage.